I want to welcome you, whether you're live with us online or whether you're watching this at a later time, you're welcome here. Here has changed, hasn't it? What a crazy week. Life with this pandemic has been surreal and pretty terrible. I think it's safe to say that a lot of us are scared right now. We're scared that we might get sick or that someone we love might get sick, especially our older family members. We're afraid the economy is going to implode and we'll lose our jobs. Some of us already have. We wonder whether we'll have to give up our plans, our hopes and our dreams for the future. And we're asking ourselves, how long is this going to last? I'm here looking out at a lot of empty chairs. It's not a good feeling. Allison warned me that preaching to an almost empty room would be hard. And we don't know when we'll next be able to gather here together as a church, in person again, as we love to do. So this has been a week filled with fear, with trouble and sorrow. And the Christian faith doesn't try to avoid any of that. God welcomes our lament. Today we're going to start a three-week sermon series that will take us up to Easter. And through it, we'll be following Jesus in the course of the most awful week ever. A week that led to the cross, to the first Good Friday. And as we do that, I pray that we will find our comfort and our hope in a God who comes close and who suffers with us. Who suffers for us because he loves us so very much. So let's pray before we open our Bibles. Lord God, help us to understand you better and to love you more as we take these words to heart, as we receive your word through the Holy Spirit. Amen. So we're going to read from the gospel, the good news, the story of Jesus as Matthew recorded it. In the 26th chapter of his gospel, Matthew 26, verses 36 to 46. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and he found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, 
Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I was at Walmart this week. There was no toilet paper. And we needed it. I needed to buy it for my parents. I've learned a lot recently from the good people, actually the amazing people who work in grocery stores. They're the ones who really know what's going on. So right before leaving Walmart, I circled back again and asked one last time, any toilet paper? No, he said. But then he added, I think a truck might have just come in. All of a sudden, there was hope on the horizon. So I waited, and eventually someone came out and said, we have toilet paper, it'll be here in 15 minutes. And I used that time to walk around the store spreading the good news of the arrival of toilet paper to everyone I could find. And they were delighted, and pretty soon a crowd joined in the place, the empty spaces where the toilet paper was soon going to be put. And we experienced something like fellowship, a bizarre fellowship, to be sure, all of us two meters apart, telling stories about what we could or could not find. I was also at No Frills this past week. I was at the checkout, and all of a sudden the cashier had a coughing fit. I jumped back at least two meters, like she'd pulled a gun on me or something. She backed off, as she was right to do, and she coughed carefully into her elbow. But all I could think about was that she was really, really, really close to my groceries, the groceries I was going to be taking home. The next day, I was talking to one of our elders on the phone, and I started to cough myself. And then I felt what seemed like a shortness of breath. And I was afraid. It has been a crazy, scary week. In Matthew 26, we get a glimpse into how Jesus dealt with the craziest, scariest week ever. And we're going to see three possible responses to the difficulties in our lives. First of all, we can sleep through them. Second, we can suffer through them. And third, we can sacrifice through those difficulties. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus faced his deepest fears. He knew he was going to die, but he wasn't alone. Not at first, anyway. When this story starts, Jesus is with his friends. Jesus went with the disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he goes on farther with Peter, John, and James. Jesus obviously needed his friends at this point. He says to them, stay here and keep watch with me. But his friends fell asleep. When Jesus returns, he asks them, couldn't you keep watch with me even for one hour? God wants to wake us up. As terrible as this pandemic is, it's also an opportunity for us to wake up to who he is and what he's doing in the world. 
I think we'd rather sleep through this crisis or many crises we've experienced in our lives, though. I've seen a, a meme going around that says something like this. Your grandparents saved humanity by laying down their lives in two world wars. All you have to do is lay down on the couch, watch TV, and stay home. I guess that's true. I guess you could avoid this whole thing by binge-watching Netflix for two to three months or however long it's going to take. But I'd say then you would have missed out. You'd have slept through a call to a better life. By this past Wednesday, I had read too much pandemic news. I don't know if you can relate to that experience recently, just news overload. And you start to feel like it's overwhelming, is the the sensation that I felt anyway. And I knew I I had to pull myself out of that vortex. And, And so I turned to one of my mentors, a 17th century French mathematician and philosopher named Blaise Pascal. Pascal has this great quote in one of his books where he says that the human condition is that we run heedlessly into the abyss after putting things in front of us so we don't have to see it. Whether you die in this pandemic or in some other way at some other time, the abyss is coming. But we'd rather amuse ourselves to death. We've got this incredible range of pleasures and entertainment like no other society ever has in history. TV, sports, sex, alcohol, music, fashion, video games, shopping, a lot of it online. And they're all good God-given things. But we are tempted to treat them as ultimate things. And so we're often fast asleep to the spiritual reality of our lives, which is that it's all meaningless without the hope of a God who loves us and who can rescue us from that abyss that Pascal warns us about. I think most of all, we love to have control. And we achieve that control through our wealth and our technology, among other things. But in just the past two weeks a lot of that certainty and stability has disappeared. And it disappeared because we were never really in control. We have been in denial about how fragile our lives are, about how small we really are, and about how badly we need help. In effect, we were asleep. Today, a lot of our pleasures are no longer available to us, The noise and the nonstop action of our lives have ground to a halt. The traffic, the pollution, the relentless pursuit of money and power, it has stopped and it's quiet now. Are we going to wake up? Will we listen to Jesus when he invites us, as he still does today, to keep watch with him and to pray and to put our trust in him? Pascal also says elsewhere in his writings that all of our problems as humanity come from one thing, and that is that we don't know how to sit quietly in a room alone. I love that. 
And in these crazy days, I would ask, first of all, myself, but also to you, the question, how are you learning to pray again? How are you learning to be quiet again with God, to be alone with him and to listen for the words of eternal life, the encouragement that he wants to speak into your heart and your mind? I really want to know that's not just a rhetorical question. And maybe you can share what you're learning right now in these crazy days in the comments on this live feed or afterwards if you're watching it at a later time. Or you could email them to me. I'd love to tell some of those stories even next Sunday. Starting this week, we're going to be offering a daily devotion for as long as we're not able to meet here together physically in person on Sunday mornings. And as Allison said earlier in the announcements, if, if you're not on our email list, all you have to do is send a note asking to be added to it to office at courtrightchurch.org. So let's not be afraid. Let's wake up to the way the Holy Spirit is inviting us to be creative, presenting this as an opportunity, and let's do it together. When the disciples fell asleep, Jesus didn't get angry with them. He doesn't blame them. That's what we would do. It seems we're always awake to other people's failings, but we are quick to overlook our own. But Jesus reacts here with gentleness, with kindness. He says the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He's highlighting the good intentions of these friends of his, the disciples. As Jesus asks us to wake up, I think most of all, he wants to rouse us from our denial that there's any real problem in our lives. We are asleep, most of all, against God. We are in denial about how we have chosen to be apart from him. We have turned away from him. And we tell ourselves that we're basically good people. But Jesus came to free us from that delusion. He wants to wake us up. And he wants to invite us to admit that we are helpless and hopeless in our sin and our acute self-centeredness. And he opens our eyes to how we're unable to find our way to God on our own. He wants us to receive his freedom. He wants us to wake up, to grow up, and to have a whole new life, this abundant life that Jesus is always talking about in the Gospels. But we have to ask, how is Jesus going to do that? How is he going to offer us that kind of freedom? After all, normally when you are pursuing freedom, you look for someone strong to give it to you, to provide it. And here in Matthew 26, what we see most of all, I think, is weakness on display. Well, you can go to sleep and avoid it when you're facing difficulty, But the most human response is simply to suffer through it. Jesus does that. It says that he was sorrowful and troubled. And the Greek words in the original text are even stronger than that English translation. They suggest an extreme horror, really, was coming over Jesus, like this terrible dark cloud was descending into Gethsemane. Mark, in his version of this story, in his gospel, says that Jesus was astonished. It was as if all of a sudden Jesus feels this crushing pain, this weight bearing down on him. 
Luke says that Jesus was drenched with sweat and there was blood intermingled with the sweat. Maybe the most surprising thing here, though, is the content of what Jesus prays. Through the Gospels, Jesus consistently does his Father's will, and he's not afraid about doing it, ever. But now, here, Jesus says three times, Is there any way out of this, Father? It's like he's desperate to escape what's coming. Why would the Son of God feel that fear, that desperation? Well, because the suffering of Jesus was unlike any other suffering in human history. Yes, we know Jesus was fully human and that he suffered like we do. This was the dark night of his soul. This is a reminder to us that Jesus is with us today, now, in whatever dark valley we're traveling through. But also the suffering of Jesus was beyond anything we can understand because right here at this point, he was on the verge of complete and utter separation from God his Father. As I've read about the news coming out of Europe, Italy in particular, and before that, out of Korea and China and other parts of the world, some of the most awful stories I've heard have been stories of separation. I read about an 86-year-old woman who died alone in northern Italy, isolated in a hospital on a respirator, one of the few I imagine they have left, separated from her family, from her children and her grandchildren, who were heartbroken at not being able to be with her, to hold her hand in those final days and hours. Whole communities can't gather even for funerals. Family members are cut off from one another. People are alone. But separation is something we've known for a long time, even before this pandemic. Many of you know what that's like. You're separated from a family member, from a former friend, maybe from your spouse. Whether it's geography that separates you or a broken relationship or even death, separation is incredibly hard when it's from someone you love. But imagine Jesus for a second. Imagine if the love you had was perfect love, if the relationship was so close, so unique, so intertwined, that it had its own mysterious name, Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, glory, power, beauty, inseparably united, eternal. Jesus was facing the prospect of being separated from all of that, of being cut off from the source of all love and life and goodness and faith and hope. All of it would be gone for him. He was about to lose everything that makes life worth living. Jesus went into the loneliness of that terrible suffering for one reason, so that you and I would never have to suffer alone. But the suffering means even more than that. The third way that we can respond to difficulty in our lives is through sacrifice. 
when we see someone going through hardship or even when we ourselves are experiencing hard times, we can try to reach out to others who are in need. It's the opposite of sleeping through trials and difficulties, and it's more than simply suffering through them. We make sacrifices to help those in need. And we're trying to do that right now as a church, as Courtright, here in this neighborhood around our church building. Yesterday, a team of people went door to door distributing 400 flyers along Devere Drive and all over this area, inviting people to reach out to us to let us know if they need help with something. And we did that in my family yesterday as well. We dropped off cards for a bunch of our neighbors, especially some of the older ones, inviting them to let us know if we, if we could run an errand for them or buy groceries for them or, or whatever. There are restaurants and businesses here in Guelph that it would be easy to ignore as we stay at home most of the time right now. It'd be easy to keep our distance, but we can order delivery. Or we can buy gift cards. There are ways that we can creatively reach out in love to our neighbors. Because we know that perfect love casts out fear. And the church is called to love like that, to serve through sacrifice. For centuries, the church has shared the love of Jesus in times of pandemic and plague. This is really nothing new for us in a way. And God always meets his people when they step out in faith. And he does the most amazing things. And I'm already hearing stories of how he's doing that today and now in this difficult time. So I want to ask you, how are you practicing that kind of love yourself? Would you be willing, this coming week even, each day to ask the Holy Spirit who you could reach out to and encourage with a word? with a phone call, with a text, by mailing or dropping off a card, by being intentional and generous with your time. The church is also called not just to sacrifice ourselves, but to point to the ultimate unique sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Throughout scripture, it's clear that God cannot forgive without sacrifice. That real forgiveness is costly. When you forgive, if you're really forgiving, you absorb the cost. You absorb the loss in a way. You bear it yourself. That's what Jesus is talking about here when he refers to a cup. It's not a literal cup. It's a cup that represents something and it's so important to understanding who Jesus is and what he's doing. Jesus prays, my father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. We would normally think of a cup as a symbol of something good, of salvation. At communion, the cup holds wine that represents the blood of Christ shed for the forgiveness of our sins. But long before that, the cup was a cup of judgment. In ancient times, the cup was used as a means of killing those who were condemned to death. The Greek philosopher Socrates was executed by drinking a cup of poisonous hemlock. 
In the Old Testament, the cup signifies God's wrath against human evil. It's a symbol of divine justice. I don't know if you read about these two U.S. senators who used the inside knowledge they got by being privy well in advance before the public knew about it, about the, the incredible threat that the coronavirus posed to us. And they subsequently went out not to try to share that news and raise awareness, but instead they chose to profit from it themselves. They sold stock a week before the market began to crash. And they bought stock in a few companies that looked likely to benefit from the coming pandemic. Now, their political careers are likely over, but people all over the place are crying out for justice against them and for justice more generally as well. And the God of the Bible answered those cries. The God of the Bible is a God of justice. And the cup here in Matthew 26 represents that judgment. Ezekiel 23 says, You will drink a cup large and deep, the cup of ruin and desolation. Isaiah 51 talks about the cup that makes you stagger, the cup of God's wrath. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus staggered as he got closer to complete separation from God his Father. He knew what was coming, that he would soon be taking all the sins of the world and God's wrath on himself. And it was utter agony for him. But the cup is necessary. It represents God's intolerance of evil and injustice. It gives us the hope that everything that's wrong in the world, everything we see that's broken, will one day be put right. That there will be justice for the hoarders, the cheaters, the racists, and those who store up wealth only for themselves and who don't care at all about all the vulnerable people who may die in this pandemic. God hates sin and evil. And that's what we call his holiness. Sometimes I hear people say that they don't believe in a God of wrath. They will only believe in a God of love. But unless you understand a God of wrath, a God who has a cup of judgment for evil, you will never understand a God of love, a God who was willing to come and to drink that cup himself for us. Unless you understand God's anger at sin, you'll never understand the greatness of a God who was willing to take that on himself. That's love. That's not sentimentality. That's true, costly love. If you only believe in a God of love, then what does it cost your God to love you? And if the answer is not much, then it is not the unique, life-changing love that God shows us in Jesus Christ. No one has ever suffered like Jesus did. And in the midst of all that suffering, Jesus prays something pretty unbelievable. He prays, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus is about to do the hardest thing ever done to undergo the greatest injustice, and yet he prays, thy will be done. In Genesis, if we look back to the beginning of the Bible, Adam and Eve disobeyed God, and it led to humanity being broken and doomed. 
Here in a garden once again, Jesus acts with perfect obedience and opens the way to the healing and the restoration of all the nations of the world. That's why the Apostle Paul calls Jesus the second Adam. In the first garden, sin and death appear and hope is lost. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see that Jesus is going to defeat sin and death and that he will give us an ultimate hope, hope even beyond the grave. He says, and it's a promise to you and to me, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So where does all of this leave us? Well, first, Gethsemane reminds us that Jesus knows our suffering. He knows the fears we have as this pandemic spreads around the world, as it comes to Guelph, as it threatens every one of us. And whatever you're feeling today, fear, depression, grief, loneliness, anxiety, doubt, Jesus knows. He is a God who has entered into your place of suffering. He is with you as you ask all those questions. Jesus understands. And he also sets us an example. He teaches us to pray. To pray like him, saying, Thy will be done. And then, most importantly of all, he doesn't wait for us to get that right. He goes ahead of us. He is obedient like we could never be even as we want to be. What you really need to know is that the obedience of Jesus is on you. It's all around you. It covers you. It fills you up. All of us are struggling to feel good about ourselves. And we fill the emptiness we feel in our lives with anything we can get our hands on. We self-medicate with food, with sex, with alcohol, with pleasures of every kind. And we try to find meaning, ultimate meaning in our jobs, in money, in friendships, in family, in marriage. But none of that can take God's rightful place. He's the one and he alone is the one who can satisfy us. Thanks to Jesus, we don't have to hide from God any longer. We don't have to stagger under the weight of our guilt and our regrets. There's mercy even for people, people like us, who hoard toilet paper or who are tempted to do that during a pandemic. When God looks at you, he sees the beauty and the faithfulness of Jesus. And that changes everything for us. You'll be able to forgive people, to really forgive them, because you'll know that you are forgiven. Most of all, you'll be able to rest in his love. This is the love you've been looking for your entire life. So look at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Look at him suffering and dying for you. Let it move you. Take the time to allow that to happen. Give him all your fear and anxiety. Fall on your knees and receive his grace and his peace. Trust in the promise that Jesus offers us that nothing will be able to separate us ever from his love. 
and his love endures forever. And all God's people said, Amen. I can hear you out there saying it too. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you that you love us so much that you sent your son Jesus to suffer and to bear the cost for us, that his sacrifice turns everything around. It casts out our fear and it sets us on a path that leads to you. So I pray for peace as we open ourselves up to you, Holy Spirit, and receive that good news. In Jesus' name, amen.